Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, welcome back. So today, I, I want to start off with some questions uh, that are certainly applicable today to today, but certainly also are applicable to, to markets uh, a month ago, uh, a year ago. Uh, or, or a month or a year from now, potentially, depending on, on where things ultimately head. And, and the question is, how do markets continuously move upwards? And, and when I say markets, I'm, I'm primarily talking about stock markets, equities. You know, as of this morning, uh, Thursday, stocks globally are essentially at all-time highs. Uh, and, and that's on the back of, of what could be potentially some kind of bearish news, whether it's really lackluster economic growth, uh, China continuously, you know, the, the economic data out of there continues to show that that growth going forward is not going to be what it has been in the past. The United States uh, economic data continues to be, you know, lackluster as a whole. If you look, you know, I'm, I'm not keeping up day to day, but but as a whole, week to week, month to month, uh, you know, recession in 2020 is still on the table. There's still some European countries that are more or less in a recession or on the brink of a recession. I'm looking at, you know, Italy or, or Germany. And yet all markets are, are essentially at an all-time high. In fact, more recently in, in the geopolitical realm, you know, despite the the news of, of uh, that that China and the US will be soon signing phase one of this trade deal, which actually, you know, phase one is is if anything, is mostly important because it signifies for the time being that, that we're not going to see a huge escalation in the trade war for a while, potentially. But but that stuff contained within is, is not something to be super bullish about. Uh, even with that and, and, and uh, uh, the, the recent calm in, if you want to call it calm, in the Middle East, you know, we still have the fact that the U.S. and China... Uh, still haven't made a whole lot of progress in in our trade talks. There's still some huge subjects in terms of of IP violations, uh, in, in terms of trade, in terms of, of technology, uh, in terms of jobs that I feel very strongly won't be worked out. That this trade deal is a bit of a bust. And in the Middle East, I, I don't think that the situation with Iran is over. Heck, it's only been uh, you know 36 hours, maybe since the the airstrike or that the missile strike uh from iran on uh u.s uh, bases that house u.s forces in in iran or in iraq uh things are still fresh and yet markets are at an all-time high and and you guys are not at all surprised by that neither am i it's it's sickening it's like what how how is this happening but we're not surprised like what is going on because this has been the norm for so long now that crisis strikes or some bearish news comes out and maybe for a day sometimes maybe for an hour this will rock the markets but inevitably they climb back up again and why is that the case well to sort of revisit a a, a silver fortunism which i don't know if i invented it maybe maybe not maybe i just heard this somewhere 
and kind of went along with it and I just repeated constantly. But, but really what it comes down to is not necessarily that markets are rigged. I think that's a bit of a lazy answer. There's some element to that. The plunge protection team, I think, is very real. The Fed intervention, other central banks openly uh, intervene in markets. Sure, there's some truth to that, but that's to just leave it at that, I, I feel is a bit lazy. Is it the fact that traders are just totally irrational? There's some truth to that, but can you blame them? Uh, for, for 10 years, we've kind of had the same story with few exceptions of, of markets continuously climbing no matter what news is thrown their way. Every, everything is somehow spun as, as bullish. Uh, can you blame them? Is it stock buybacks? Eh, that's part of the story. Stock buybacks have been huge over the last 10 years, but it cannot explain this entire rise in global markets, in, in U.S. stock markets in particular. Uh, no. Ultimately, my longtime listeners know what my answer to this question is, and that is is that right now, stock markets in the U.S. and globally, they have, this has been the case for 10, probably longer than that, 10, 20 years, are a product of credit growth and liquidity. Yes, there's other elements to that too. Irrational traders, there's momentum, there's technicals, as well as uh, uh, some element of market rigging and, and stock buybacks are a huge component of it. But ultimately, it comes down to credit growth and liquidity. So let's break those down real quick. What do I mean by that? We'll start off with with a you know recent tweet, if I remember correctly, was was tweeted out by uh, a guy by the name of Sven Henrik, one one of my favorite guys to to follow on Twitter because not only is he quite bearish uh, and 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 somewhat bitter about his bearishness because these markets continuously climb, but he's smart about it. He takes concrete data and shows us why this is so rational, rather than just saying, "I want to fight this market." You know, he's he's given him hard data. On, on, on why this is ridiculous. And, and he actually put out a recent tweet. Uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, one of their branches, probably St. Louis, uh, but I forget exactly which one. And they put out, among their indexes and, and data that they put out, uh, something called the um, Economic Conditions or Financial Condition in, in Index. And, and what it ultimately shows is the, the financial conditions of the U.S. economy. So, so what that means is how hard is it to get a loan? How hard is it to, uh, uh, you know, what is the liquidity and the credit growth in the current system? So, so for example, when the Fed is cutting rates or they're, when they're doing quantitative easing, etc., in theory, that should be, uh, uh, making finan- financial conditions far, far easier than otherwise. And, and vice versa, if they're raising rates, if they're just decreasing their balance sheet, if credit markets are tightening up because of fear or some other factor, uh, financial conditions are going to be getting more difficult. Well, anyways, what this chart shows is that right now, in early 2020, financial conditions are at their easiest ever, period. Easier than 2008, 2009, easier than 2012, easier than 2019, 2016, 17, easiest they've ever been. And, and that really is a testament to just how active the Fed has been 
lately in attempting to satisfy the desires of the market for credit growth and liquidity. So, so what, what do I mean when I say credit growth and liquidity? Well, credit growth, I'm talking about debt. Uh, it's, it's, uh, a secret that is known by many in this community, but but I think not a whole lot in the broader investment community or or among the general population, that debt growth is is what fuels a big part of what fuels our economy these days. Debt-based growth, whether it's at the government level, the consumer level, the corporate level, it, it plays into all of this, right? And so what I mean by that is that credit growth is stimulated in theory by Federal Reserve action across the board. There's no doubt about it, okay? So when the Fed lowers interest rates, think about the the effect that that has on a consumer, on a corporation, on the U.S. government, which in theory it it should be lowering the interest rate on the uh, short end of the curve, the, the U.S. government bond yield curve. It stimulates uh, debt creation, right? If you can go out and and buy a house with with a mortgage, get a mortgage on a house at a rate then that is lower than it was uh, a month ago or a year ago, potentially significantly lower, half percentage point, a percentage point, you're more likely to buy the house at that point in time. Because, hey, guess what? All of a sudden, your payment is lower. The total amount that you're going to be paying for the house when when you're done paying off your mortgage is lower. And the same is true for auto loans, for credit cards, although that interest rate being what it is actually sometimes moves in the opposite direction. But that's a smaller part of of this debt growth picture compared to to mortgages or car loans or, or whatnot. Same thing goes for corporations. You know, we've seen this phenomenon lately. Speaking of stock buybacks, we're, we're... uh, corporations will take on debt, issue bonds, and use that money not to expand operations, not for capital expenses, whatever, but to buy back their own stock. And yet you, ha- you have to wonder, is there some logic to that? Does that make sense? Because their stock is, I mean, who, who can argue with their stock going higher and higher? No, I think it's totally rational. I think it's poor management, poor f- uh, um, example of, of fiduciary um uh, uh, responsibilities, and yet it happens, right? Uh, and it might not just be that, right? Corporations very well may be enticed into taking out more debt because uh, um, interest rates are dropping to expand cop- capital operations, to to buy out another corporation, to to add employees, whatever. But it's all based on debt, and the same is true for the U.S. government. They do this through through the Fed funds rate, and and in theory lowering. Uh, the interest rate on the short end of the curve, but also through quantitative easing. The federal uh, government, as it is right now, something like 80% of their new debt is being bought not by China, not by Japan, not by foreign investors, not by pensioners here in the United States, not by hedge funds, uh, not even by banks, but by the Federal Reserve. 80% right now with their ongoing quantitative easing program. The Fed basically entices an increased amount of credit growth. I don't even know if entices is the right word, but but maybe supports, enables the U.S. government to take on more and more debt year in and year out through lower interest rates and through quantitative easing. So that's a credit growth 
side of, of that. And it's, it's not at all hard to see why that that would, would send stocks higher because of stock buybacks or because of increased, increased consumer consumption or consumption by the U.S. government or by even corporations, uh, sending stocks higher. Overall, the U.S. is, is a consumption-based economy and debt growth, all else being equal, increases consumption over the short term. Now, I mean, obviously you guys know the other side to this. That debt doesn't just go away when you take it on. No, it has to be paid back or rolled over. And and there's some huge consequences if that isn't done, right? So what we have today is, is corporations, zombie corporations, as sometimes they're called, that can barely even service their current debt. We're talking about paying you know, the minimum payment so that they don't default on it or, or just paying the interest rate on it and continuously rolling it over from month to month, year to year. That's very commonplace here in the United States. And, and it's a very risky position for these corporations because not only is their balance sheet totally jacked up, but also when interest rates rise, they're, they're screwed because they have a ton of debt that they continuously are planning to, to just keep rolling over it's not like they're taking out 30-year bonds, right? Maybe a couple years. And when those bonds ultimately mature, they have to roll it over, take out some new debt. And, and if interest rates are low, if, if corporate bond market is willing to support that, then so be it. But as soon as rates rise by half a percentage point, by a percentage point, by, by two, whatever it is, which is pretty tame compared to past corrections in, in the uh, corporate credit markets, then they're screwed because all of a sudden they can no longer service that debt, right? So that's the credit growth. And, and again, you know, this, there's two sides to that, that there's no such thing as a free lunch for consumers, for corporations, for the government. But then there's the liquidity piece of it as well, which is a little bit harder to wrap my mind around, potentially harder for you to wrap your brain around. But ultimately, what it comes down to is, is there ample... Um, buyers and sellers, ample currency in the markets, in the financial system to support market levels. We, we know from, from past history that illiquidity in markets makes markets very risky and oftentimes um, volatile, usually to the, to the downside, right? And so... We'll take, for example, the Fed. How do they increase liquidity? Well, well, right now, they're engaging in two different types of operations. They're doing something called repo market operations, as well as quantitative easing. Now, we'll start with QE because it's a more familiar term for most people. But the way that quantitative easing works is it's, it's essentially a form of money creation, money printing. Now, there will be people say that is it's more complicated than that, Matt. Uh, there's more to the story, and, and that don't really listen to that because it's a little more complicated than that. But that is ultimately what it boils down to. So what the Fed does is they create money digitally, put it on their balance sheet, create it, put it in their account because they're the Fed. They, for whatever reason, were given that power quite some time ago to issue currency, and then they buy something with that. In the case of quantitative easing, it's generally uh, either U.S. Treasury bonds or uh, mortgage-backed securities. 
securities that in some way, you know, bundled together or backed by mortgages held by consumers here in the United States. But who are they buying those from? Ultimately, they're buying them from banks. And so the situation that you have is that banks have a, they, they go from having a, a relatively liquid asset like U.S. Treasury bonds, which are you know, pretty liquid, but, but not as liquid as dollars, or mortgage-backed securities, which are not nearly as liquid, but, but still, uh, and certainly not worth their, their weight in gold or anything. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply like that but but still a uh, significant portion of their their balance sheet they go from holding that to straight up cash oftentimes this is part of their reserves or whatnot but ultimately the effect that it has is that it gives these banks an increased amount of liquidity the financial system has an increased amount of liquidity because now those bonds that lack of liquidity is being shifted to the federal reserves balance sheet which they could care less about the fed I mean, they're, they're the Fed. They can print money to cover losses. It doesn't matter to them. And these banks, and, and, and in turn, the financial system, has all these extra dollars, which, of course, are the most liquid financial instrument in the entire world. That's how liquidity has grown through quantitative easing. And then there's repo market operations, which are extremely similar, but short-term. So the way that that works, the way that in a normal situation, the way repo markets work is you have a financial institution that needs liquidity, usually on a very short term basis for, for whatever reasons they need cash. Uh, and, and they essentially go to the repo markets for, for, I don't know, a payday loan or short term, whatever you want to call it. The way it works is that they put up a certain amount of, of, assets, collateral, whatever you want to call it, bonds usually, sometimes mortgage-backed securities, sometimes other assets, but, but pretty liquid assets that are then bought by another financial institution. On an overnight basis, there's a deal where, where Bank One sells bonds or, or some other asset to another bank with the agreement that they're going to buy it back the very next day at a slightly higher price. Uh, in, in terms of, of yearly interest rate, we're talking, you know, two or three percent. But of course, on an overnight basis, you know, that's that's two or three percent divided by three hundred sixty-five, right? So it's a very small. But but if you're if you're continuously lending in this form or uh, participating in these repo markets, it's it, it equals out to two or three percent a year because you're doing that night in and night out. And there can be longer term repo operations as well. Same idea, except maybe it's going to last a week, five days, two weeks, things of that nature. And that's what the Fed has been doing as well since September. And, and this was also actually the norm for the Federal Reserve. Uh, prior to the Great Recession, they had, uh, I think the term would just be a standing repo facility that's just kind of semi-permanent. But then with quantitative easing and, and all the extra liquidity and reserve growth because of that, they, they decided, hey, we don't need this. 
Uh, banks are doing fine. Uh, but beginning in September, they came back into the repo markets in, in a big way. And around year turn, they uh, year end of 2019, they they needed to provide a lot of support to the markets. And, and actually, the, the story goes is that supposedly that that support was was going to go away as we move into the new year. But but lo and behold, we're finding that actually heading into January. No, I mean these these banks still need that liquidity. So, anyways, that I mean that's how repo markets. That's how QB works that's the fed's two primary roles right now now other central banks provide that sometimes through other ways uh corporate debt in the case of of the european central bank uh buying etfs uh, essentially stocks in the case of of the uh bank of japan right providing currency uh, liquidity dollars yen euros whatever to the system and and taking off the balance sheet of banks uh less liquid assets such as bonds so so how does this leave us with with a situation of, of higher stocks i mean that's kind of the question we're left with in terms of liquidity and again it's it's more difficult for me to wrap my brain around that than, than it is just to talk about credit growth but essentially as i said before financial markets and, and therefore stock markets bond markets etc operate more smoothly with a high amount of liquidity. The liquidity that we see being brought into the system through the Federal Reserve uh, to these banks, these, these large U.S. national banks, uh, and this is, again, this is true for, for in some way, shape, or form for the ECB, for, for the Bank of Japan, for many other central banks. That liquidity that they have now injected into the system makes its way from the banks into asset markets, oftentimes stock markets. But but I think the same is true for, for corporate debt markets, uh, to some extent, real estate markets, uh, plenty of these other markets that that otherwise would, would have far less liquidity. And that injection of liquidity ultimately leads to higher prices, a more, at least what would appear to be a more stable market. So that is the long answer, I'm, I'm what, over 20 minutes now, the long answer to why these markets keep going up. It's not because what's going on in the Middle East is somehow bullish for stocks. It's not because somehow uh, uh, the economy is, is in for a huge boom in 2020. It's not because this phase one trade deal is super bullish for the economy. Those can all be spun as bullish. And sometimes you even see it in the, the, the media. You know, on any given day, you search Dow Jones or S&P 500. And, and what you find is, is they'll give a report about the stock market going up or down on any given day. And then they'll try and describe a reason to it. For instance, this morning, I, I, I Googled... Uh, Gosh, it's probably uh, it's probably just some zero hedge, and it shows, you know, stocks going up, uh, stocks recover, you know, stocks, uh, global stocks at all time highs, on hopes for a trade deal and de escalation of the Middle East, right? So every day it ascri- ascribes a reason to it, but I think it'd be simple, more simple for all of us if if each time the market went up, you simply saw a headline that basically said markets continue to rise to new irrational highs 
on the backs uh, on the back of of increased liquidity and credit growth, on the back of increased central bank intervention. I think that would be more accurate, more more truthful. Now, of course, it's easier just to describe a reason to it and say this is why markets are moving up. And, and that's why traders will look for these reasons to be bullish uh, to, to buy into the market. But, but ultimately, the market would be nothing. The stock market would be nothing today. It would be a fraction of where it's at. Without the credit growth, without the liquidity injections that it's had over the last 10 plus years. Now, the problem with this, as I mentioned with, uh, with, with credit growth, is that debt doesn't just go away. Like it does, it has to be rolled over, it has to be paid off, it has to be serviced. And, and as that load increases, it has an increasingly, um, it's almost like track on like a vehicle, right? You think of like aerodynamics and whatnot. Uh, debt is like taking, you know, as you increase it, it's like, you know, rolling down the windows. It's like taking some air out of the tires to, to, to decrease their efficiency. It's like uh, driving without a hood on the car. It's like taking the fenders and, and the bumpers off the car. It's like uh, um, <laughs> putting a bunch of passengers in the car and loading it up and then telling them to wave their hands out the windows and create some air resistance. Uh, put a big big piece of metal out through the sunroof to, to slow down the car. I mean, that's essentially what it, what it amounts to. It amounts to, to drag on the economy because that debt has to be serviced with dollars or or whatever currency that could otherwise be used to, it could be saved, it could be used to invest in, in uh, consumption, in capital expenses, um, hiring more employees, or just not taking on the amount of debt that they're currently taking on, right? And it ultimately has to be paid back. And the same is true for liquidity. We're getting a pretty good reminder of it in real time right now that when you inject liquidity into the system, it's pretty darn hard to, to remove it. For example, uh, two good examples of that would first of all be uh, the, the the whole quantitative tightening experiment. You know, QE was an experiment by the Federal Reserve, but then beginning towards the end of 2017, they tried a new experiment called QT, quantitative tightening, where they allowed their balance sheet to to run off, the decreased amount of assets, bonds, and mortgage-backed securities that were on their balance sheet. Either let them mature and and, and not reinvest the funds from that, or uh, take the funds from that or, or just straight up sell some of those those bonds and, and securities onto the market. And they actually were able to to unwind some amount of the balance sheet um, up until what, like maybe August of, of 2019, you know, six months ago or whatever. And, and then it stopped. It failed. <laughs> Pretty quickly, beginning in, in September, they had to completely turn it around with repo market operations and, and ultimately more quantitative easing to provide that liquidity. Because once you take liquidity out of the system, or once you provide liquidity to the system, it's pretty difficult to to bring that liquidity back into the system. What am I saying here? Once you take it out, it's pretty hard to take it. Once you put it into the system, it's pretty hard to take out of the system without some reaction, right? In, in a normal situation, I mean, it would be normal to say like, well, you know, this liquidity growth led to higher stock prices. And if we take it out, it's it's reasonable to expect stocks to go down. But that certainly cannot be tolerated right now by the Federal Reserve. They're, they're unwilling to say that we're going to let markets drop significantly. 
So instead, they, they keep this liquidity there indefinitely. And the same is true right now for repo markets, right? The Fed basically came out uh, and it after the, you know, as we head into year end of, of 2019 and said, look, you know, things will be fine. We have all this potential liquidity um, that, that we can provide to the system up to, up to like half a billion dollars. And so as we head into this liquidity crunch, head into year end, the Fed's got the markets back. And, and then once, you know, we move into early 2020, it'll be fine. We'll, we'll pull back from what we're doing right now. Well, it's, it's several, several days into 2020, and they haven't done that yet. They still have to be there. There's still that demand from the markets for their repo operations. Once you inject liquidity into the system, it's pretty darn hard to take it out. Same is true for credit growth. Right, not only the fact that that credit is detrimental to the system and it acts like a, a, a drag on the system, but also there's there's you know if you look at a, a chart of, of credit growth, when you see that credit growth reverse, such as like during the two thousand eight recession, uh, there's a very slight reversal. You see the implications of that. I mean, borderline economic collapse. And so pretty quickly, central bankers and governments decided, you know, we got to get that credit creation back on track. And, and they did just that. But it's very difficult to, to say that, well, we one year have, have 6% year-over-year credit growth, and the next year we're going to have negative 1%. Heck, even going down to like 2% year-over-year, which is still positive. To say we're going to do that for a couple years in a row is pretty darn difficult without a full-blown economic collapse. So that's my long-winded, almost half an hour long reason for, for why markets continue to rise. I hope this has been educational for you. As always, if you're in the YouTube world, uh, switch over to podcasts. I demand it. No, but seriously, uh, I've seen a huge, uh, uh, I guess, show of support by people that are willing to, to leave YouTube for my podcast. In fact, you know, as it stands, you know, uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, I'd say I averaged on, on average, uh, you know, this is maybe middle of December before I really started pushing this. On average, I don't know, 300 and maybe 400 listens a day. I mean, it really varied. Some days would be really great and other ones would be kind of slow. But now, I mean, I'm already up to, you know, 450 to 500 on average. Uh, the two-week period ending December 24th was the best two-week period in terms of listens in the history of my podcast. But as of right now, the two-week period following that, which is probably like ending right now, has surpassed that, right? An even better two-week period. So let's make this next week period even better. Now, I'll leave a link down below in the description, if I remember, to my iTunes, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts, as well as... Uh, Spotify, but I'm on most major platforms. So I'd be more than happy to have you join me on those platforms. As always, thank you, every single one of you, from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to uh, today's Silver Fortune show. Sorry about the audio. You know, you guys know I already explained to you guys that I uh, have a long commute here for, for a while, and so it works best for me to just do it while I'm driving. I try and filter out some of the background noise, but I'm sure you guys heard that that large truck past me. Maybe not. Maybe the maybe enough is filtered out. But anyways, I digress. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast and God bless.